I'm prepared to use this ship to detonate the warhead before the missile reaches you. Use your ship? To collide with it? Something like that. Do you really think that would work? I'm not sure. You would sacrifice yourselves to benefit a people you didn't even know two days ago? To save two million lives? That's not a hard decision. Welcome back to Delta Flyer. I'm Thad Haight. And I'm Stuart Hollis. This week, we're talking about Season 2, Episode 17, Dreadnought. It's big, it's bad, and it's coming for us all. Well, when did it originally come for us, Stuart? It originally arrived on the 12th of February, 1996, and was directed by... It was directed by LeVar Burton, uh, and was written by Gary Holland, who was a VP and executive director of Paramount... Paramount Television Advertising. He also wrote The Collaborator and Children of Time for DS9, and those are his only writing credits of any kind. Uh, there was an uncredited rewrite by Elisa Klink, who was on the Voyager writing staff. Uh, her writing credits, she has several, but uh, the one that we would know is Resistance. Cool. Our synopsis from TV Guide a weapon designed by the Cardassians but modified by Torres finds its way to the Delta Quadrant and targets a heavily populated planet. All right. Yeah. You know. I'm impressed the TV Guide says Cardassians. Yeah. Because I feel like that's not like a... Like, I feel like TV Guide can get away with saying, like, Klingon or Vulcan, but Cardassian is not something that Joe Schmo on the street would know what that is. Hmm. Well, you know, DS9 was... What, like in the middle of its run at this point, so... Yeah, this would be season four of DS9. Yeah. So, yes, middle of its run. Memory Alpha says, Voyager encounters Dreadnought, a Cardassian missile that Belana Torres reprogrammed during her time in the Maquis. Even though lost in the Delta Quadrant, the missile still believes it is on a Maquis mission in the Alpha Quadrant, setting an intercept course with an inhabited world. Yep. That's... That's what happened. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's pretty rare that we don't have any like real nits to pick with the synopses. Yeah, for once we actually have some good working titles. Ooh, they were Counter Strike and Original Sin, and I really like Original Sin. I think they should have gone with that. Yeah, that would have been much much better. Like Dreadnought isn't a terrible title, but Original Sin is great. Oh yeah, and they never say it throughout the episode, so I never would have to turn it off. <laughs> yes. So our episode opens with Ensign Wildman. And we see a maternity uniform. Yes. She's being examined by the doctor and Cass's assisting. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about names. So we get a revisit of Ensign Wildman and of the doctor's naming problem. This is fun. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, uh, and Cass suggests her father's name to Ensign Wildman and the doctor is affronted because she never suggested it to him. And at this point, Cass brings up some other names and one of the things she says is, I once knew a boy named Tarek. Yes. Or Tarek, I don't remember. I once knew a boy named Tarek. And that's a reference to Tarek Ergen, the actor who plays Lieutenant Ayala. Oh. So he even gets, like, a little subtle name drop. Yes. Have we, like, have we, like, fully seen Lieutenant Ayala on screen yet? As in, like, we- full face, he's there on screen, like, talking to someone we have seen him plenty 
I don't know if he doesn't have very many spoken lines. I don't. I think he does have a few. Okay. We have seen Tarek Ergen full face doing things. I don't know if we have seen Tarek Ergen being officially name dropped as Ayala full face doing things. As in, like, Janeway saying, Lieutenant Ayala, and someone turning around and saying, Yes, right. Captain. Right. Yeah, I don't think we've seen that yet. But we have definitely seen the actor in Starfleet uniform. Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. And if we haven't, then our good friend Ben definitely has. Yeah, and I fully expect to get a long missive from Ben about all the all the Ayala scenes that we have completely missed. <laughs> Which is to say probably most of them on my part. <laughs> yes. Uh, one thing from the, from the naming bit that stuck out that uh, made me think of something was when... The doctor says that, you know, Frederick is a good, dignified name and also close to some sort of terrible slur amongst the bullions. And it reminded me of the bit from Hitchhiker's Guide where Belgium is apparently like the worst curse word in the in the known galaxy. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, just like a little thing. It's how my brain works. That's a I mean, that's a trope that happens a lot. Sure. I'm thinking uh, in the uh in david edding's books actually it came up torak didn't have a beard well yes but that wasn't what i was thinking uh in the first book of the melorian when belgareth is like doing research he knows something is brewing but he doesn't know what and he goes to the orgos mhm oh yeah yeah yeah, I don't remember. I can't remember what word he had said, but yes, he asked if he had ever heard of Zondramus. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't ask me why I like have a have a you know photographic memory of David Edding's oeuvre, but I do. Hey, you know, like <laughs> or Edding's is oeuvre, I should say. Yeah. Brains are weird. Yes, almost as weird as whatever weapon it was that had destroyed that small craft they can they encountered. Does Duritanium happen again? Yes. No. Okay. It 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 sounds no no they've they've used Duritanium before. They've used Duranium. Oh. And they've used Tritanium. Uh, so maybe it's not. Hmm. We should double check this. I am double checking this. It appears three other times, twice in Enterprise and once more in Voyager. Okay. Good enough. Uh, I, their comment of it certainly appears to be no bigger than a shuttlecraft. Well, Voyager would know how much debris a shuttlecraft makes. <laughs> they determine that the weapon signature was Cardassian, and this is when we find out that it's Torres's fault that whatever the ship was got blown up. Yeah, and I'm wondering, like, I can see why you mind might first go to Seska, but where would Seska have gotten Cardassian weapons? Well, so I've been reading this, um, this, this sci-fi. Like, it feels weird to call it fan fiction, because, like, fan fiction to me always feels like, I'm going to take the characters from Harry Potter, or whatever, and write new stories about them. Whereas this is, I mean, it's just it's just short sci-fi fiction. Yeah. You know, so, there we go. Yeah, no, that's not fan, fan fiction. Right, no, exactly, but it, it like, it, like, feels like it falls in this, it, it's amateur fiction. Mm-hmm. And, and, like, the humans are out in the larger galaxy, like, a little bit, and there's all these aliens around. Well, if one of them had, like, gotten their hands on the correct materials and built a rifle... Even though it had not been officially manufactured by any, you know, Earth facility, you could clearly tell that it was, you know, it left the damage indicative of 
human weapons. Hmm. Yeah, because no one else would think to use that kind of primitive weapon. Right, exactly. That also comes up a lot in this series, basically. Is, oh, nice. Yeah, like that, I, like, I was like, making a Stargate joke. Yeah, no, yes. no, no, I know, I got it. But, like, like, like that sort of thing, and it's, like... Like, one of the things is, like, they don't, like, they have camera technology, but they don't do, like, networked backups. Mm. And the humans are always like, oh, yeah, right, I can just blow up this one computer. And, like, the fact that I was here is gone now, forever, and no one will ever know. Anyway. So it's like the Harry Totodoff series where the aliens attack Earth. Uh, yeah, like a little. I never really, I never finished that series. Well, that's, again, where the, the humans have, like, the, the old technology that they, anyway. Right, yeah. no, but the... Like, the larger point is, if Seska... Seska could have built Cardassian-style weapons that gave off the same energy signature as Cardassian weapons. I mean, I guess... I I feel like that's, like, something that, unless Seska, like, worked in a phaser design factory or something at one point, being able to just do that out of her own, like, knowledge instead of having you know something to work from seems far-fetched uh, yeah it'd be one thing if she was like sat down with a box of parts of like a box of cardassian weapon parts and built a functioning weapon right but field like but taking trabe technology and uh-huh. modifying it to be cardassian technology you're right that is probably a bit of a stretch and why would she like why would she even yeah. bother exactly they already have particle weapons yeah like have but- we established that the cardassian phasers and uh what what is it that klingons use because they don't use phasers they use um disruptors thank you like have we established that cardassian weaponry is more powerful than trade weaponry no okay then why but it can you know destroy duritanium so okay but i think that's just a matter of power and not the technology technology itself uh, right exactly you know you put enough power behind anything and mm-hmm. it'll yeah same reason why they use deflectors. Okay, so, but I can see how your first knee-jerk thought would be, Janeway's first knee-jerk thought would be Seska, because that's the only Cardassian they know in the area. Right, that, you know, that, that, you know that, that's kicking around the Delta Quadrant like they are. Yeah. So anyway, so we are off to a meeting with the senior staff, where Torres gives us the rundown on how it is that this weapon came to be, why it's why they think it's kicking around the Delta Quadrant. It's the most reasonable explanation. So I could flew there on its own. Mm. And then Tom Paris comes in looking quite disheveled. Yep. And once again, we have this sort of shoehorned into the episode. Uh, this will pay off soon. I really hope so, because right now I'm totally in the dark. I mean, obviously I've seen every episode of Voyager. Oh, you actually don't remember? But I really don't remember. <laughs> what's coming with this and right now it's just been these like weird bits and pieces that especially following up the end of threshold is like what are you doing tom yeah i know right it like feels like threshold like at this point with all this stuff that like threshold should come after all of this (laughs) like he shouldn't have had like his big like life revelatory moment of how he needs to be a better person and then become like the worst person we've seen okay since yeah. the first episode so i all i'm gonna say on this is there is an explanation and there's an explanation for why it happened for there's an explanation for why it's happening now out of the blue too okay i look forward to this and it's only and it will only be a few weeks until you 
get the cool. Uh, I do like the little exchange between Neelix and Torres, where she had just gotten done saying that you know the missile was built to be unstoppable, and it's like, well, if it was unstoppable, how did you stop it? Mm, yes, it's like Neelix's only contribution to the entire episode. Yes, it was. Like Kess had a bigger contribution to the episode. Kess certainly had a few more lines. Yeah, heck. Lieutenant Ayala, in an inadvertent way, had had more of a contribution to this episode. Oh, Michael Jonas has more of a contribution to this episode. Ah, oh, Jonas. <laughs> also, his old handler is gone. There's a new handler now. Yeah. Yeah. And he's getting frustrated because he doesn't think any of his things are getting to Suska. No. But before that happens... Yes. Chakotay gives Paris a bit of a dressing down for Paris not dressing up. And I have to wonder... In what universe is having disheveled hair not being in proper uniform? Yeah, I was looking. I was like, is, there, is his uniform particularly rumpled or something? And it's not. Yeah, it, it, like, they don't have buttons. So it's not like he like, misbuttoned his jacket yeah. or something. And there's these stupid jumpsuits. So they're always going to be a little wrinkly. Uh, right. I was definitely focusing on the jumpsuit when he and Torres were talking in the next scene. Because... But I was like really focusing... Uh, on the uniforms in the next scene with with Torres and Paris, because Roxanne Dawson has like a very narrow waist, and either she has really wide shoulders, or the uniform gives her really wide shoulders. It has shoulder pads, and yeah, it's just like a like terribly unflattering uniform for her in particular. And I have that uniform. Well, I have the jacket version, but. Yeah, uh, that you know they they sometimes have when the plot calls for it. Yeah, and uh, it, yeah, it has shoulder pads, so that's why. But during this scene, although I was distracted by the shoulder pads, <laughs> we do get a little bit more information about Paris's current situation. Yeah, where he is just in this state where I guess he's just like feeling or is very isolated from everyone else on the crew, where. He he points out that he's envious of Torres for integrating into the Starfleet crew so easily. Mm-hmm. And he's apparently having issues with this. Yeah, despite the fact that until recently we had seen Paris having a healthy social life with many members of the crew. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you know, what about all those people that come to Shea Sandrine? They, yeah. I mean, they're not just there for the fake beer. Yeah, I mean, I'm still... Uh... We're not going to go down that rabbit hole again. Uh, Uh, Maybe holographic friends just aren't the same. Oh! Well, there's an episode of TNG about that. I'm guessing it involves Barclay? Yes. Of course it does. We also find out that Paris apparently got into a fight with another lieutenant over Paris' sloppy reporting. Apparently. He's apparently... he's, He's coming unhinged, it seems. Who is he reporting to? Isn't he the department head? Well, maybe this other lieutenant is. Well, I mean, would definitely be more senior in terms of uh, time and service. But maybe they're part of uh, just like an administrative branch or whatever who's just there to collect everyone's reports. Mm. Bureaucratic mentality is the only constant in the universe. Yes, yeah, and it's the only. And you know, it it sure feels like Balana's point is it's the glue that's holding voyager together as they're here Mm. in the delta quadrant where there is no starfleet yes and well she's not wrong no and janeway 
sort of made the same point at the end of Alliances. Yes. It was a little... Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> like, I I could tell what they were trying to do with Janeway and Alliances, but... Yeah. yeah. But for more discover, more conversation on that, you can listen to our episode on Alliances. Yes. Where we talked at length about uh, all of it. So Yes. Uh, we're back on the bridge now. We're tracking down the missile. And I can't remember if it was in this sequence or in the conference room before where we find out that Dreadnought has the ability to mask its warp trail. Masking its warp trail was in the conference room. The evasive okay. maneuvers were this scene. Right. So, remember how I was talking a couple of weeks ago about how ah, great yes, it would be? If... running silent. Yes. Yes. That was also in Alliances. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Maybe they could pick up some tricks from Dreadnought on how to best avoid... Because, like, I don't know... Like, if Voyager is masking its warp trail, it who else is going to come along just, like, randomly looking for a ship? Mm. Whereas they know that the Kazon are actively looking for them. And it's not like them running silent would prevent them from picking up distress calls, exploring new and exciting civilizations, mm. visiting weird moons, like... Stopping, uh, Cardassian murder missiles. Right. Checking every nebula for coffee, like... It's gotta be in one of them. Right. There's nothing saying that they can't keep doing everything they've been doing, minus being attacked by the Kazon. So they should really get on that. Yeah, but then life would be boring without the occasional Kazon attack. They could use a little boring. <laughs> well, maybe not Tom Paris. That's probably what's causing him to become unglued, but... That's true. If there were Kazon attacks, Tom, Tom Paris would be fine. Yeah, I know. he'd be busy, like, jabbing his fingers at the console to initiate evasive maneuver Delta-7 or whatever. Mm. Yeah, that that's what he lives for. So, it's interesting because the... And again, this will all be explained. But the way Tom Paris has been acting is a little at odds with his final scene with Janeway before he gets in the escape pod. When he, yes. you know, says th he tells her thank you and all that. Captain, thanks for everything. Yeah, this is all very, very strange. Is is there a duplicate Tom Paris? Did Not he yet. get cloned? I mean. That does happen, but not this season. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's next season, I think. So now we have uh, Jonas. Like, this is when we actually have Jonas communicating back to the Kazon. Mm-hmm. And he quickly signs off because he can tell that someone is about to make a subspace transmission. How does... Yeah, how does that work? Yeah. Is it, like, a absurdly lengthy process to, like punch in setting up a subspace communication in the computer or something so that he's able to like see like oh keystrokes are going in that sure seem like a transmission is subspace communication like a universal constant too I'm wondering like do does everybody just have it well how do you think it's communicating to the Kazon oh that's true I mean we, we we've discussed previously about this like weird fact that all of their comms work on the same frequencies and see like I can I can even the the site to site comms I can allow for the fact that it can th that it can accommodate a very large variety of communication frequencies and bandwidths etc but subspace communication I mean 
that's a very specific kind of communication that apparently everyone has. Yeah, maybe... I don't know, like, maybe it kind of goes, like, a little bit hand-in-hand with developing warp technology? I mean, they are... They are related, I suppose. Sure, but... Because warp, warp technology, they are technically in subspace when they're warping. Like, the warp bubble puts them in subspace. Right, yeah. So maybe that's it. Yeah, okay, fair enough. But yes, how can he tell that someone's about to do it? Yeah, that that's just my best guess, you know? Mm-hmm. So anyway, so they catch up to the missile and have figured out how to, like, read its weird signal echoing stuff to actually pinpoint its exact location and they're getting ready to transport Torres over there and of course the technician moves her fingers on the weird slider thing and slides them back down why does she have to slide them back down yeah and why does she have to slide them up like just push a button okay, initiate so transport. The sliding, the sliding I know motion. it's a throwback to the yeah. blah da blah da blah da blah yes like, there's a late like there are numerous transporter scenes including one later in this episode where the technician is actively doing stuff in order to establish a transporter lock and i can totally get behind that as to why they need like the big console instead of just a single button that says beam but but the slide yes i agree the slide seems strange yes it's there because that's how scotty did it on tos it's but scotty did it on tos with an actual like what do you call a sliding switch? Is it just called a sliding switch? Might just be called a sliding switch, yeah. Yes, Scotty did it with an actual sliding switch. Right. And, you know, it, it's just, it's unnecessarily anachronistic and skeuomorphic. It's just, it, it's going to bother me every time. It is my pips. So Taurus gets above the missile, or, so Taurus gets on board the missile, and uh, we, we'd already seen it, like, from the exterior, and it already looked, like, way bigger than I thought it would be. But that thing is way bigger than I thought it would be. Yeah, especially on the inside. Like, why is the unmanned missile, why does it have the giant, like, crew access area? Yeah, you can fit, like, six people in that room super comfortably, like, manning all the stations. Right. Like, when Taurus was initially describing it, I had expected that there was some sort of very small, like, engineer access hatch or tunnel or something like what we see at the very end like mm-hmm. that through the whole missile basically that would make more sense way more but sense. then they wouldn't be able to use all those ds9 props <laughs> yeah but that was not a small missile Jeez. Nah. so she gets on board and starts talking with herself yeah sort of as you do yeah i mean you know why not and the missile says well this planet looks like Ashalon 5, it smells like Ashalon 5, it weighs it like Ashalon like 5. It must be Ashalon 5. And yeah. Torres is like, do you not recognize the stars out here? Because I don't. Yeah, see, that's the part that I don't get. Like, even before she touched it, how did it not notice that the stars were... It doesn't matter if the planet meets... Meets... Matches all of the characteristics. It doesn't matter if the planet matches all the characteristics of Echelon 5. None of the star arrangements don't match what the Dreadnought should know. So, like, it it should have already realized it. Especially considering how smart it apparently is. It should have already realized that it was not where it thought it was. It should have been failing its every 14-hour self-diagnostic by saying, Navigational Array out of alignment or something like that yes yeah it, like it, how is it 
that said, I c- if you buy the fact that it didn't, it do- it <laughs> it is the logical conclusion to make that yeah. Torres is trying to fool it because the odds of it being in the Delta Quadrant are, as it points out, very small, negligible. Yeah, and it's not wrong about that. No, but but it you know it it does wise up to the Delta Quadrant deception. Yes, it does. Yeah, it's it's not going to be fooled. Well, not again, anyway. No. So, Torres reboots the navigational array. The missile's like, yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. I'm going to power down now. You're right. Good job, Bolana. Thanks. A little too conveniently. Uh, well, apparently. Bolana packs up her neatly organized toolbox. Thank goodness there's a neatly organized toolbox on board Voyager. The last time we saw a toolbox, it was just like stuff that's like thrown in there. That's how my toolbox is. <sighs> and beams back to Voyager. She's like, all is well, everything's great. And they're talking about how they can best take apart the missile to salvage it. Which makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then Paris comes over the comms like, oops, a daisy's running away. It didn't believe Bellana at all. It saw through that Delta Quadrant deception. That's right. They fire a couple of their precious few torpedoes at it just to, I don't know, piss it off, I guess. Yeah. Oh, by the way, er- so yes, we do use some torpedoes this episode. By the way, earlier we did have 100,000 kilometers, which brings up my complaint about there being other metric preferences. Well, they had also said that it had 1,000 kilograms of matter and 1,000 kilograms of antimatter. Megagrams are a thing. I know. So, they fire on it. Uh, they fire on it some more. They... <laughs> have since contacted the planet where the missile is headed towards. And they learn that they subscribe to the Ship of Death Belief. Uh, yes. Uh, they also subscribe to the, well, something bad is coming, we better prepare ourselves belief, which is, you know, good for them. Yeah. Won't help, but good for them. Sure. So we're back to Voyager, they're firing on the missile. It's not doing anything. Bolana remembers that if they fire a tachyon beam at a something or other, I don't know, it's technobabble, that it could penetrate to the reactor core and cause it to overload and blow up. And like, as is always the case with like any, like almost any show other than say Battlestar Galactica or Babylon five, they always have the ships way too close together for combat. Yes. And it like, it sure looks like Voyager is like at best a kilometer away from this big missile. I think you mean a thousand meters. You're right. I did mean a thousand meters. Or did I actually mean a hundred thousand centimeters? Ooh. But yes, it does look that way. Like, they look, like, really freakishly close, and they're gonna blow the missile up. That sure seems like Voyager's gonna die, too. But anyway, they're firing the tachyon beam, and Harry reports back, I'm reading a buildup of plasma, and no one thinks to turn off the tachyon beam? Apparently not. Also, where did all the steam come from? Eh, whatever. This is why Harry is still an ensign. Okay, like th- this is this is this is this is this week's reason why Harry is still an ensign. Yes, yes, it is, and there will be a l- reason every episode. Yeah, there has to be. Where did all the steam come from? They like got pipes. Do they? Do 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 you think? Actually, I've never given any thought to how Starfleet toilets work. And Are they? It sure seems like anytime they want water, they just say replicator water. Maybe, like, uh, presumably the to- the toilet, the, I would presume that the Starfleet toilets take the stuff and put it, and convert it back into energy for the replicators. Sure. But, 
I, I've never given any, given any thought about the idea. Well, showers. How do they take showers? They don't. They take sonic showers. How do they wash their face? Ah, uh, that's true. There we go. Or like yeah. their hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do do that. Okay. So they have running water on board the ship. Why are there water pipes like at all the stations on the bridge? <laughs> Fire suppressant system, man. I don't know. Like the sparks and and such are bad enough because circuit breakers. Seriously. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the steam just seems unlikely. Yeah. No, I hear you. Oh boy. We're never going to get past these problems. At least there were no rocks falling from the ceiling this time. That's right. So Voyager's completely disabled at this point. Yes. And I have to assume the missile is still flying along. At warp 9. Yeah, so I'm, like, I get that warp's a logarithmic scale, but like, how fast do they get their ship back online to be able to catch up to the missile? Jeez. Well, even if they could do like warp 9.3 or something, because we know they're not doing 9.95 for any sustained period. That's very uh, true. That's still like much faster. Yeah, I suppose. Anyway, they're back in communication with the planet to say, well, we tried and we failed for now. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll fix it, we swear. The ambassador, prime minister, whatever he was. First minister, I think. First minister. Please. I've always hated that title. That may have been right, yeah. Asked how many casualties were there on the ship. They're like, oh, no, we're, you know, broken bones, we're fine. He's like, well, that's good to hear. On our side, we're predicting two million casualties. So, it's a thousand kilograms. It's a megagram. Yes. And I, I don't know if you would, like, consider this to be... Like, if you have one unit of matter and one unit of antimatter, do you have two units of explosion? Do you just have one? I don't know how this works, because antimatter is not a thing that, like... Like, it does exist, but it's not a thing that, like, we use regularly. Not regularly. I think they've generated it at CERN. They've generated a few particles. Like, I, I don't even know if they've done a complete atom. Yeah, no, and, and, it, and it dissipates incredibly quickly. Yeah. So. Well, once it once it reacts with normal matter, it's like, yep, I'm gone. Right. So anyway, but I feel like that's too few people when they said earlier that it was enough to take out a small moon or space station. Yes. Okay. So. I didn't see this on Memory Alpha. I saw this on Amazon, of all places. Because uh, Amazon does little... Does its own little pop-up video things. Pop-up video! Cool. In this case, they had three of them, so they don't do a lot of them. But one of them is... The Dreadnought is said to carry a thousand kilograms, one metric ton, of antimatter. When combined with one metric ton of matter it would release the energy equivalent of 42,000 megatons of TNT, which is 2.8 million times the power of the Hiroshima bomb, which converted only 0.7 grams of matter to energy, and 840 times the power of the Tsar Bomba. Now, if I recall correctly, the Tsar Bomba had a mushroom cloud that, like, very nearly, like, scraped the top of our atmosphere. It was pretty big. Yeah, it was a big bada-boom. So, yeah, I'm thinking a few million is underestimating. Yeah, I'm thinking, like, half their planet's going to be dead. And the other half, well, oh, they have space travel, so they can leave. But, like, that planet's going to be messed up for a long time. No, because the First Minister points out that they don't have nearly enough ships to evacuate people. Well, once half the planet dies, they might. 
Oh, I suppose that's true, but that also Assuming takes out half the ships. Assuming that it doesn't take out <laughs> half the ships. Yeah. It will take out half the ships. Well, no, they could launch all the ships. Like, this, like their planet's going to turn into those weird, like, impossible sci-fi planets where there's, like, a big hole in the side of them or something, which, like, shouldn't actually hold together or exist, but it somehow right. magically will. Mm-hmm. Now, like, I mean, no slight upon that planet, but now I kind of wish the missile had hit just so we could see, like, <laughs> the big, like, crescent, sh- <laughs> like, planet with a big bite taken out of the side of it, you know? Mm. Before Voyager flew up into the distance, as it always does. As it always does. <laughs> yeah, it's like nine episodes out of ten end that way, so... And they always show the stupid shot with one of the lights burned out. <laughs> anyway, so... That drives me nuts, because I get it. It's the same shot... It's- it's the same shot that they're showing over and over again. But after they realized yeah. that one of the one of the lights was out, couldn't they have redone it yeah, so that no. both lights were lit? No, no, that's way too hard. <laughs> is this your transporter sliders? This is my transporter sliders. Which is and, my you And you see it in every episode. I know, I know. So, Are you telling me it doesn't bug you? I usually have already like ended the episode at this point. But you know exactly what I'm talking about. I do, I do. So, Taurus managed to get, get herself back onto Dreadnought. She finds out that she's locked out of the computer systems. She manages to get herself into it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then asks Dreadnought, do you remember those hypothetical games we used to play? And now I'm wondering, how long did Torres spend reworking this missile? She talks about doing it for weeks. Oh, did she? I missed yeah. that. Okay, then no, never mind. Everything's fine now. Because <laughs> in some of the descriptions, it's, it sounded like she was there for like maybe like a couple of days reworking the thing, and that doesn't feel like a long enough time to establish like a relationship with the computer, you know? Hmm. Yeah, she does talk about doing it for weeks. So she convinces the computer to like bring up all the information on navigation, but it's not going to show her the the weapons because she doesn't need to see that. Right. And this is when Torres discovers that there is a backup of the Cardassian AI yes. still in the computer system. That somehow she had missed when she was working on the computer before? Well, she had also apparently missed to make sure the navigational charts thought to check the stars. That's true. I mean, that one's, like, that. the star thing is slightly more forgivable because... What were the odds that it would get transported? Right, exactly. It's like, like, like she spent all this time on this so that she could send the missile on a one-way trip to blow up a fuel depot. It's not like it was like gonna come back after so she could like keep using it. Right. Yeah. See, that's the other thing. There's a lot of design in this thing, including like the aesthetic design of the workstations and everything. That why would you put this much effort into something that's gonna blow up? Uh, yeah. If there had been some sort of thing about how. The Cardassians started repurposing messenger shuttles or something. Mm. Then that would make way more sense. Yeah, you know, like you you strip out like certain things, you drop in two hundred megagrams of of warhead. There yeah. you go. But the the reasoning comes all comes back to, well, they have all these Cardassian props from DS Nine, so rather than make something new, sure, sure. The computer plays along for a minute, and then it's like, hmm, nope, you're still wrong. I'm still going to blow up the planet. Yes. And then it gets distracted because the planet's fighters arrive. And Janeway calls Bolana to talk to her, and Torres just tells Janeway what she's doing. And I'm like, 
Dreadnought can hear you. Yeah, which Torres realizes like a minute or so later when she says, I'd rather not say it out loud right now. <laughs> yeah. It's like, come on now, Torres. Loose lips sink, sink ships. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, ideally, that's what you want to happen in this instance, but... Right. Well, this ship, not, you know, your ship. The missile dispatches with the fighters very easily. Voyager gets a little damage in the process after expending more torpedoes, futilely. Mm-hmm. I think they fired a total of six or eight torpedoes this episode. I think it was six. And we fired a couple earlier this season, too. Yeah, so they're easily at 30 or less now. Mm. Well, don't worry, they'll just reappear. Yeah. Torres uh, manages to activate the Cardassian computer, and they get into a fight with each other, which buys her enough time to access the reactor. Interesting fact. The Cardassian computer, they use a male voice for it, even though on DS9, Cardassian computers have a female voice, because they wanted it to be very distinct from Torres's voice. I don't think I'd ever really noticed that the Cardassian computers were female voices on DS9, but I've only seen DS9 once, so... Ah. Well, because, like, the station computer is Cardassian computer on DS9, which always confused me. Especially when we find out how easy it is, apparently, to just replace a computer on a Cardassian... Like, it's weird to me that they they didn't, like, rip it out and put in a Starfleet computer on DS9. Or reprogram it like, like yeah. Torres does. She, did, she didn't replace it, she just reprogrammed it. Yeah, but it's interesting that they didn't reprogram it to be Majel Barrett on DS9. Yeah. Well, you know, they probably, you know, they wanted something new and different, so... So, we get a little bit of, uh... 2001-esque. I was, yeah, I was thinking that too. So, yeah. But, although, the difference being that in 2001, Hal was unfairly maligned and murdered. (laughs) (laughs) No one gets it, speaking of inside jokes. Yeah, no one will get that. (sighs) It's worth it. Ah! No, Hal, Hal was murdered. He, you know, Hal had clear mission parameters that he needed to complete. Mm-hmm. And the humans were acting wacky. Yes. So they were going to stop his mission. Yeah, Hal did what he had to do. Right. And in this instance, Dreadnought is doing what it has to do, even mm-hmm. though, in this case, it's wrong. Yes. So, Dreadnought being murdered, I will shed no tears over. Hal, I feel kind of bad about what happened to Hal. Yeah, and the Hal subplot is the only good part of the movie. Four real what is up with that movie dang and cue the hate mail in five god bring it (laughs) yeah so meanwhile on voyager Mm -hmm. janeway has ordered an evacuation and started to self-destruct so they can hopefully take out the missile using voyager the first time we see the self-destruct on voyager also interestingly unlike on other shows it does not need a confirmation from a second senior officer yeah, I had noticed that. Like, that felt weird. Didn't it need, like, three confirmations on, um, in, in first contact? Three, it needed three. I don't remember in first contact. I know it was at least two in first contact. Yeah, it was three. Because uh, I just watched first contact last week. And, uh, I remember thinking it was strange that Worf had a first contact, uh, had a, a Enterprise destruct code. Like, did it sink over, over iCloud or something? <laughs> i subspace yes yeah no no in, in the future the date's not in the cloud the data is in subspace mm, okay but yes it needed and it needed three on star trek three because you know they have the very secure just zero zero one destruct zero 
Yes. <laughs> and on TNG, they needed two. I don't know. Maybe they're like, it's a tiny ship. I don't know. It. It. I, I also did notice that when Janeway activated the self-destruct, I was just struck by the fact that it's like, why was it that easy? Like, yes. I feel like, I feel like there's a step missing here, but I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was. There should and at then, least be an are you sure you want to blow up the ship pop-up. Well, you know, she said it for 20 minutes, so she has 19 minutes and 59 seconds to change her mind. Hmm. There should still be an are you sure you want to blow up the ship pop-up. Yes. <laughs> yes. Everyone's get out except Tuvok, who decides to hide his friendship behind logic. Mm, indeed. As he's wont to do. He is very wont to do that. Torres, meanwhile, finally manages to breach the reactor core. Yeah. And she's firing a phaser into the thing to blow it up. Yes. From from Hell's heart, she stabs at it. Mm. They beam her away at the very last moment. Which is impressive timing, because it was apparently, like, just as it started to explode, because she got singed. Yes. And I guess, and so what, the doctor then beamed her from transporter room 2 to sickbay? Or did he, like, intercept the, like, the transmission? It's, uh, no, I think he said from the transporter room to sickbay. I wanted to advise you that I took the liberty of beaming Lieutenant Torres from the transporter room to sickbay. Okay. And, of course, Janeway had forgotten all about the doctor, because of course she did, because she's terribly inconsistent when it comes to remembering his personhood. Yeah, and he's not a sociopath. No, he's sentient. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, but at least she admits she forgot about him. Yes. And and they recover all the escape pods, and that's our episode. Yeah. This is also the first episode where they use the escape pods. But not the last. No, it's not the last one with the self-destruct either. It's not the last for a lot of things. Except for the last time there's going to be, like, a crazy Cardassian missile that Bolana had reprogrammed that magically appeared in the Delta Quadrant and was blowing up shuttlecrafts and potentially planets. Oh, oh, you forgot about that Season 7 episode? Dang it. You know, like, okay, listen. I've only seen the whole show once. I can't remember everything that happens in every episode. No, there is not another one. There is not Dreadnought 2 Electric Boogaloo. (laughs) This time it shocks people. (laughs) <laughs> instead of blowing them up it just like rolls up to a planet and goes mm. well you know sometimes it, it did seem like while Bolana was working on this uh, at, she was willing to sacrifice herself to save the planet so you could almost say she had a death wish nicely done and dear listeners death wish is next week's episode thanks for listening this week if you enjoyed this you should also check out our other podcast Stargate Weekly you can find or review both on your podcast player of choice, and you can also reach us at our email address, deltaflyerpod at gmail.com. I'm at Tyrannicus on Twitter. And I'm at Gamicus. And you can follow the show at Delta Flyer Pod. And that's our show. Yeah. Stopping.